welcome to the podcast of the Project on Shiism and Global Affairs at Harvard University's Weatherhead Center for International Affairs. My name is Mohammed Saga, and I'm an Associate and Research Director for Shia History and Identity here at the Project on Shiism and Global Affairs, as well as a PhD candidate in Islamic History and Civilization at the University of Chicago. Today, I'm delighted to interview one of the leading scholars in the field of Middle East Studies, Professor Peter Mandeville, who has had extensive experience not only in academia, but also in government service, including as a member of the State Department's policy planning staff from 2011 to 2012 during the initial outbreak of the Arab Spring. Currently, he's professor of government and politics in the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. So Peter, your book, uh, Islam Politics, does an excellent job as a uh, introductory uh, academic work aimed at uh, both a specialist and a non-specialist audience to reflect the diversity of political, social, and historical contexts within um, Islam. Um, but also, just as importantly as uh, introducing a historical context and a political and a social uh, context to the readers in a very rich way, uh, which I think your book does, um, just as importantly, what I found to be kind of unique with the book um, is how you deftly put in different disciplinary or theoretical schools of thought um, in the scholarship of Islam and politics. Oftentimes, books um, will speak from um, an authoritative scholarly tone, um, but without necessarily, especially the books of the, of the sort, which try to expand, uh, which try to touch upon such a, a wide breadth of Islam and politics in the Muslim world. Um, but in your book, you make it clear where these different sort of camps lie. Um, and I thought, looking through the book again, um, that it makes the work uh, pretty balanced and objective to the extent, of course, that, um, that we can try to be objective um, in academia. Um, would you say that that's a fair assessment of uh, the kind of motivations of the overall structure of your book? Um, and if so, uh, why did you choose that approach to, to writing the book? Thanks for the question, Mohammed. because actually the kind of theoretical underpinnings or lack thereof is actually a dimension of the book that I rarely get the opportunity to discuss. And I think it's fair to say, as I've gone through the various editions of the book, that question, you know, the sort of theoretical bearing of, of the text is one that I've wrestled with most often because, you know, it's not an explicitly theoretical text in the sense that it reviews and engages explicitly with various theoretical explanations for political Islam that have been advanced in the academic uh, literature. And I think that's, that is sort of reflective of the fact that um, I, I have wanted the text to be able to function as something that can be used by scholars and, and by teachers who themselves are kind of grounded in very specific theoretical traditions and so want to have enough flexibility in the text to be able to um, have empirical material that they can work with, you know, in relation to wherever they're coming from theoretically. That said, of course, no, no work you know, e e even a work that it claims to be primarily empirical, as I would say this book does, can never avoid the question of theory simply because the kind of empirics that we choose to, to bring to light are necessarily reflective of certain kind of theoretical commitments. You're making decisions, right, about what things in the world matter when you're kind of telling an analytical story. Um, and so what, what, what I've done is to try to kind of rather eclectically uh, in the book reflect the fact that you know, its central purpose is to show that 
manifestations, morphologies, expressions of, of political Islam look different from context to context, depending on the particularities and specifics of different settings. Um, and, and likewise, I think the explanatory value of different theoretical paradigms or theoretical treatments of the topic of political Islam, I think hold varying levels of value and explanatory power, you know, depending on what context we're, we're talking about. And so I tried as much as possible to kind of give voice as I visit different country and regional settings in the book to the kinds of theoretical explanations um, and, and the kind of um, uh, accounts that we find in the comparative political science literature that, that I think help to, to best explain what's going on with Islam and politics and the intersection of those two things in different countries and settings. Wonderful, great. I think that I think that definitely comes across um, in, in the work, um, and the tone of it, I think, it, um, reflects that sort of uh, approach to try to stay faithful to many different, um, you know, lenses through which to view what's going on. Um, and in that sense, I think it's important as, as as scholars to have that sense of both humility, but at the same time, a serious, uh, rigorous engagement. Um, so, I guess as as a follow up question to that. Um, you know, you know. I'm sure writing this book also, um, and and researching this over, you know, over time has has exposed you to different, um, you know, disciplinary um, schools of thought. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about your own training, um, your own initial um, ways in which you were exposed to thinking about the region um, and and Islam, and I and I think you started uh, looking at the Middle East, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and uh, and then maybe talk a little bit about you know through the process of writing this book or through through your own research how look, looking at how other disciplines or scholars or schools um, uh, looked at this um, and how that has that kind of given you insight into what 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 disciplines or what who, which people um, are uh, excelling or falling short or what you know what methods might be falling short uh, in explaining and what methods are. Um, are more promising looking to the future. Sure, sure. So, I mean, I come to the topic most broadly by dint of personal biography. I was born and raised in the Middle East, um, in, mm. Sa- in Saudi Arabia, more specifically, where mm. my, my family lived as expatriates for more than 50 years across three generations. Oh, wow. my, my grandfather went there originally in the 1940s, and my dad worked there, and so I and my brothers were all wow. raised, you know, and so From my... the United States? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and and so you know that 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 you know Islam was something that was you know all around me as as a child, um, and so but but it wasn't really until I left the Middle East, you know, to to move to the UK as a student, that I kind of began to think more objectively about Islam because I, I was away from it, right? It was. You know, I, it was not sort of in the air around me. And I, I also kind of came to realize something about the diversity of expressions and manifestations of Islam, you know, socially and certainly politically once I left the kingdom. And that's what kind of got me interested in this, this sort of, you know, what I saw as a sort of very monolithic public and certainly policy and political science discussion on Islam that just bore no... 
you know, had very little alignment or, or grounding in the reality of the diversity of Islam as a, as a lived religion, you know, as, as I had seen it. And so that's kind of what got me interested in it. Because I, and I was, because I was studying international relations, you know, I naturally became interested in the question of how we should think about Islam in relation to the field of IR, which, you know, dominated by, by the, the sort of realist uh, tr- tradition, you know, would, would, would say that, you know, we don't really particularly pay much attention to things like religion or culture because it's about nation states, you know, competing for power and furthering national interests defined in terms of security. Um, but, you know, it, having been born and raised in a country where, where you know, I- I- Islam seemed to intersect and be integrated into every dimension of social, political, and public life, um, you know, I, I thought that there was actually more of a story to be told yeah. about. Where- and the content of the Islam or the thought system, of course, is, is very important as well, which IR or realist theories might, might gloss over. Yeah, in, in, in yeah, entirely. And, you know, and, yeah. and so, you know, that, that, that's where my academic interest in the topic developed. And then I, I began to teach courses, you know, on Islam and politics, you know, first as an advanced grad, grad student and then, you know, when 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 I had my my first um, academic appointments, and I kind of soon came to be dissatisfied though with the existing literature in the sense of there not being a book that was useful or what I found to be useful to kind of teach political Islam the way I wanted to um, and as sort of comprehensively as I wanted to. Um, you know, there, there, there were things like John Esposito's Islam and Politics book, but, you know, John at a certain point just stopped updating that text. And so it was aging very quickly. So I decided that, you know, I'm going to I'm going to write my own text that will kind of try to do dual service as both a contribution to the academic l- literature on political Islam, as well as being something that can be used as a, a teaching text, and you know, hence, hence Islam and politics. You know, I I, I was very aware in writing it that um, it was likely to be used by political scientists and scholars of political studies, and so I thought I felt that it was important to theoretically speaking. Um, make sure that the core of it was informed by existing discussions and debates in comparative politics about how we should think about and explain and explain political Islam. Um, although over time, and I think this is where I am now, um, you know, I certainly see value in in the work that that you know many scholars like you know Jill Schwedler have has done have done around the idea of the you know inclusion moderation thesis moderation yeah and mm-hmm. and also you know work that kind of looks at uh, you know the role of, of uh, the, or the utility of social movement theory in explaining Islamist mobilization I, I think there is value. Um, there, I think, particularly for explaining some of the kind of more tactical dimensions of what expressions of political Islam look like. Um, in terms of the bigger picture, though, you know, I, I continue to find stronger accounts of, of what this is all about you know, in, you know, post-colonial and, you know, as, as, as we, we tend to say now, you know, you know, studies of coloniality, decoloniality, if I really want to understand the thrust of it. And I also find a lot of useful value in the kind of set of debates that, that circulate 
under the the notion of post Islamism, um, you know, and neither of those two two sort of domains of thinking and discourse come from political science, which by its nature, you know, is is constrained intellectually somewhat because it's trying to account for and get at very certain kinds of questions. Yeah. Whereas I think it takes as a status quo, whereas these other disciplines right, might. You know, right. Yeah, it, yeah. It, exactly. So, yeah. so, you know, there, there, there's the inherently anti-status quo, you know, right. orientation of the discussions yeah. about decoloniality. And then I think there's just right. some very interesting, deeper sociological questions that are being posed by um, scholars like Asef Bayat and Olivier Roy, who have obviously shaped the sort of discussion of post-Islamism in very interesting ways. Yes, yeah, exactly. Wonderful. Um, that actually uh, leads directly to the question that I that I had in mind, um, which um, you know will touch uh, a bit on this on on the, the kind of post-colonial legacy or, or understanding uh, Muslim engagement with. Um, what we can understand as um, Western like modernity or Westernization, yeah. um, and so, you know, the 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 term Islam and politics, um, you know, from our perspective today, um, is 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 normative, and it's there's no way to necessarily escape using those terms, and, and nor should we. But uh, but of course it is, um, uh, you know, there are presuppositions, and there's you know, for many they might look at Islam and politics um, as loaded term, right? right? So for many Muslims, um, politics has certain connotations, right? So they might see pol politics itself as a conceptual construct. Um, and whereas for them, for many Muslims or many non-Muslims as well, um, you know, ethics and morality is just acting at the right time, doing the right thing. Um, politics isn't a separate sphere. It's just doing the right thing at the right yeah. time. Um, whether that has to do with governance, that's um, if you want to call that politics, okay. But um, but that you know the the certain secular connotations which which go the construction of politics or religion um, would be, I think, for uh, as a historian myself, I think would be definitely historically um, uh, not uh, you know not the case for, for for most Muslims, at least in the parts of the world that I um, that I study in the Middle East. Um, but of course, we can't escape these terms uh, using them right now. Um, but I think one of the, one of the contributions that um, that uh, a work in the field, which you've also uh, done a dialogical review for, uh, Bobby Said's fundamental fear, mm -hmm. um, I think that work does a, does a, does a does a good job of of challenging um, our understanding of um, politics and secularism and religion by sort of introducing a range of different. Um, concepts and words, and and pushing us to think about the differentiation between um, Westernization, um, Eurocentrism, you know, liberalism, yeah. modernity. Like looking at these different sort of tracks. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, and, and understanding how in the post-colonial context, um, you know, the colonial or imperial sort of uh, medium was how um, was how Muslims' understanding with Westernization or modernity. Uh, was mediated, so you know, thinking thinking about these, how 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 these historical, um, how have how have the how has the post colonial context um, affected uh, Muslims, um, particularly in the Middle East, uh, but in general, um, how has that, in your view, has impacted the historical trajectory um, of how Muslims have viewed these terms, um, and 
And is are these useful ways of differentiating and thinking about um, the diverse ways in which modernity can can impact uh, Muslims today? Wow, so just a little tiny question there. Yeah, yeah, I can much longer than I, know, I can probably. Say, I, you know, it's easy. I can do that in thirty seconds. Um, mm. Yeah, wow. I mean, right. so, so you you know you 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 mentioned Salman Said's book, A Fundamental Fear. Yeah. You know, which was yeah. deeply deeply influential on me. Um, in, in in sort of shaping the entire way that I think about these questions. Um, and I, I think his book was very prescient, you know, in the sense that it, God, if I remember correctly, it first came out in like 97, yeah. I think. Yeah, I think 1997. Yeah, right. But, yeah. And so this was... And second edition in 2000. Right. And so th- this, this was well before we had anything like a well-developed discussion going on about the something like the emergence of a post-Western world order, right? Which we hear a lot of about today in the context of emerging powers in Asia and sort of the idea that the, the, you know, the, the sort of liberal, the Western liberal world order is, is being transformed. Um, you know, and what was really interesting about what he was doing in that text was to suggest that you know, the rise of, of what is often denoted political Islam, rather than something that needs to be analyzed as an aberration or a, a problem or something that has some sort of, you know, almost kind of um, medical etiology that must lay in, you know, failures of economics within specific Muslim-majority countries or failures of g- g- governance, he was asking us to sort of step back and, and you know, in, invite us to consider the possibility that the, the sort of emergence and presence of something that we call, you know, political Islam or Islamism might actually be telling us something more about the West or that, that which is denoted as the West than, 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 than it's telling us about something supposedly intrinsic to Islam, you know, and he was, of course, taking note of the fact of, you know, that, that traditions of, of analysis in Islamic studies and often tended to kind of portray political Islam as something that was sort of teeny, teleologically coded into Islam as a belief system. Um, and I think what what Said's work, certainly in that book, and I think you know now in his more recent text, like Recalling the Caliphate, um, you know, and that's where there's there's this consistency across his his work. Um, what 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 it does is it it invites and enables um, a very different kind of of reading that that you know necessarily calls into questions the validity of. Um, sort of categories such as the religious and the the political and the way that they have been and and and, and the secular you know and this is where we start to track towards the contributions of scholars like Tal al Assad but you know the the ways in which those categories have been created normatively coded and are in, intrinsically um, a, a, a you know a, a component of modernity and modernization. Um, and 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 you know I think viewed in that way, the 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 um, you know what what political Islam is or or what it represents as, as a political impulse um, can be read very differently. And I don't just mean like you know mainstream nonviolent Islamism such as the, the Muslim Brotherhood. I, I I actually think that this this kind of perspective enables 
um, you know, a more comprehensive reading of, you know, the, the kind of full package, you know, in, including up to and including the, the activism and militancy of groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Mm, mm, yeah, no, I think, I think that's, um, I think that's, uh, that's very true. And so thinking about, um, so thinking about like the variety in, in ways, and I, I think the, you know, especially post Arab Spring, yeah. Um, these sort of divergences um, have have come to the fore. So thinking about like um, you know the variety within the Middle East, um, the experience of um, you know of uh, groups in yeah. Egypt has been different, of course, of uh, you know, markedly from what's going on in, in Syria. Yes. Um, so I think you know if you're if you're a if you're looking if you're uh, in the region and you're looking at these divergent. Um, movements. How do you think that 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 uh, the political variation has impacted how um, Islamists themselves in the region are are, con- are reconsidering their um, or are considering what's uh, their, their own identity as uh, or their own project as political Islamists? Yeah, what a great question. Um, I you know I often say these days that that you know after studying political Islam or Islamism for you know, a quarter century now, like today more than ever, I have the greatest difficulty giving a straightforward answer to the question, what is an Islamist? What, what is political Islam? Um, not just because of the enormous variation in manifestations of politicized Islam, not just because, um, not just because there, there are so many different kinds of movements and that the kind of contemporary media and policy discourse uses labels like Islamism to, to try and denote such a broad range of, of very different and divergent groups. But also, I think, because those that, that, that you know, would name themselves as the, the, the protagonists in an I, you know, a, a political and an ideological and an intellectual project to 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 produce and enact political Islam or Islamism are themselves today facing fundamental questions, existential questions about what what this means. And so I, I think I think it's fair to say that, that that political Islam as a as a project is is at a crossroads um, today. And I, you know I think it's possible to identify. You know, some sort of key intellectual and political figures that are kind of trying to point and nod in possible directions forward for this project. Um, but I think what's what's so fascinating, but which also, but what also makes political Islam so difficult to study today, is is precisely a set of, of basic questions that are being asked about what it means to be an Islamist, and also questions about the, the sort of validity and utility of that kind of language and, and framing as a way to d- describe a, a specific ideological project. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I, I think that, that that term of uh, Islamism, of course, um, you know, aside from the kind of um, problematic implications it might have for, for, for Muslims yeah. themselves, um, as in it's like, well, we're just like Muslims. Right, or right. <laughs> you know, we're not. <laughs> just, so, um, you, know, uh, you know, aside from that, it does, I think, um, capture such a wide variety of, of um, you know, as categorization is so broad, it loses so many of the nuances um, and basic divisions that 
um, that could emerge from um, from a different conceptualization, which I think um, hopefully is, is is a project uh, that scholars such as yourself can engage in. But I think it's it's kind of it's time to to think about these um, things, think about these again. Um, one of the interesting things um, that that has happened, at least at least in my view of um, what's going on in the post Arab Spring, is you know reading reading um, you know works like Fundamental Fear or other types of uh, treatments of um, of Islamism, for lack of yeah. a better term. Um, you know, before the Arab Spring, um, these debates about you know Westernization, Eurocentrism, liberalism, modernity. Um, they were relevant. I mean, when you read these books, um, you could see how political actors like Rashid, you know, Rashid mm-hmm. Khanushi or, um, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood, they were engaging with these terms, um, how cases in Iran, for example, um, you know, these, 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 these were definitely up for debate. Um, and I think um, you'll find, uh, but, but now, uh, because of the civil war in Syria, because of what's happened in Iraq, um, because of uh, you know the the wars that are happening um, in in, the, in that part in the region, um, it seems to be less you know the, the the main topics that are coming to the fore now are, are a different set of terminology and, and concepts yes. right like civil war sectarianism yes. um, you know so are we uh, is it is it useful to now you know looking back at this at that stage of scholarship. Um, do you think we've kind of moved beyond um, the, you know, what Wassam said called, you know, the, the decentering or, you know, going away from Eurocentrism? Are we now in a, in a stage where there are different set of issues that, um, that have moved beyond those initial concerns and are now thinking about, you know, survival mode, civil war, sectarianism, basics um, in the region? Yes. And I think that you find that reflected in the... Um, the kind of political discourse employed by politically conscious and activist youth in particular in the Middle East today. You know, like, so when I speak to activists in Egypt these days, you know, what what I get from them is a sense that um, the the, the sort of the, the, the utility of conventional ideological categories like Islamist or secularist or leftist or pro-worker, you know, those kinds of of groupings and labels and, and the, and the politics that they supposedly connote, you know, have minimal utility in, in a context where, where activism, the, the very, the very contemplation of political activism is such that, the lack of any kind of civic space means that you're really concerned with basic questions of survival and more fundamental questions that define one politically as being pro-regime or anti-regime. Do you support the governing disposition in Egypt today or are you against it? You know, these are more relevant kinds of questions than, you know, where do you fall on any conventional sense of the, the political spectrum. Now, what, what I don't know, what I think is hard to say, given the enormous fluidity and disruption and instability, um, I- including, you know, um, security-related instability and, and violence, you know, that naturally push people more towards basic questions of survival and getting by, you know, are, are you know, is, is this transformation in the political vocabulary really a function of 
the 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 sort of you know the the basic challenges conditions of surviving on a day-to-day basis or are we seeing a more fundamental kind of rethinking of some of the basic categories of ideology and p- political identity my sense is that it's 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 some version of 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 both right Right. Yeah, I, th- I think uh, there's there's two interesting points that I think uh, that come that, that come yeah. to mind uh, from from those comments. One is that this idea of pro anti regime, I think, um, is definitely very relevant, um, especially in. I mean, Syria, I think, is probably the starkest mm-hmm. case of that. Um, and you know, for me, as as a, as a historian of Islam, that takes me back to the basic questions that exist within classical political Islamic yeah. thought. Uh, which is, you know, what do you do if there's, um, uh, you know, a, a, what you perceive to be an unjust ruler? Um, is it okay to rebel? I mean, it's going. It seems to be going back to those to those basic questions. Um, and a lot of the scholars, um, especially in the Sunni world, um, which you know, this where, um, yeah, at least in 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 more uh, recent times, I think um, that, or at least that strand has stayed pretty strong, uh, which is. The conservative strand of uh, of Al Ghazali and yes. others, which says, you know, kind of even if there's an unjust ruler, the anarchy, um, which or the, um, you know, which can follow from that, basically means that it's better not to to rebel. The potential to um, overthrow the government isn't worth the other risks. Um, so, so thinking about that, I mean, um, do you think that that can open? You know, have you seen those conversations ongoing um, within within, like, let's say, uh, in the case of Syria, for example? Um, where you know the, the the it's so such a stark sort of situation. Um, do you think that you know that we're going in, in a certain sense we're going back to the basics now? Um, do you think that that will open space for some of the the potential for a new um, new way of thinking about things? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is this is a really thorny and tricky issue, right? And there there's been so many. Um, uh, there's been so much debate and discussion and kind of di- di- discursive bloodshed around these questions. You know, as you know, you, you know, you think, for example, of the of the of the controversy that arose earlier this year, and you know, around that that v- video that Sheikh Hamza Yusuf had recorded, sort of came to light that 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 appeared to have him. You know, endorsing exactly that viewpoint that you know, it, you know, it, it doesn't matter how horrible these regimes are. This the 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 sort of fitna and social disorder that arises from re- rebellion is is far worse. Um, you know, and, and in that sense, I, I mean, I think some people some people saw that as like a transformation in his d- discourse. I, I I don't really think so. I I think it's 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 thoroughly reflective of a strand of thinking. You know, in, in which he has been consistently trained and schooled for decades. Now, you know wh- whether that's an ethically or normatively correct response to the moment is a different question, but, but it is certainly is illustrative and revealing of a very powerful strain of thinking um, on precisely these issues. You know, and where and where I think we see interesting eruptions of of people trying to feel their way towards new ways of engaging these these this moment and what it might mean politically is you know again in a, a, another controversy that you might have followed recently around the article that Ovamir Anjum wrote um, in the Yakin Institute paper you know on 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 the caliphate where he kind of appears to put forward the idea you know he he endorses some conception of a caliphate 
you know, as as a model of uh, governance. And indeed, he goes so far as to say that that is the only possible solution to bring some modicum of unity and stability to Muslim-majority countries, you know, and then there were, you know, this, this of course, prompted all sorts of, of cr- criticisms and, and critiques that, you know, how dare you, we've just defeated ISIS, and here you are, you know, saying that we need a caliphate. And I, I think his long essay, you know, it, it was maybe published a little bit prematurely. Um, I, you know, I don't think it's even internally consistent, but I, I do see some consistency in thought between his, the argument that he seems to be making and the basic impetus behind the work of Salman Said in a fundamental fear, in the idea of the sort of notion or, or the idea of the caliphate as a name for the hope for a different kind of politics, um, right? And 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 you know the 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 idea that that in a in a political landscape that you know does not permit of alterity, you know, beyond certain normatively coded boundaries, you, you kind of have to reach for something beyond in in order to even make it possible to to kind of get past where we are now. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, and, and I think it, it, it makes even more sense. Um, there was a, a, in your so in, in your dialogical review of yeah. Bobby Said, um, there was an interesting question where you said, where you asked them, you know, the the, the voices, um, you know, the Islamic revivalist voices. It's not that they're getting louder; it's that the West is getting yeah. quieter, um, and it's that other alternative systems seem not to be, you know, or at least how they've been practiced in yes. the Middle East. Um, have not been successful. I mean, pan-Arabism, uh, social, you know, pan or, or so, you know, socialism, uh, social governments, uh, neoliberalism that yeah. we've seen uh, yeah. adopted since post Um None of these seem to be answering the basic questions which uh, Salman Said and yourself have been asking about. You know, okay, governance. Like, can you? You know, he makes a point there of um, you know. You know, just be, if you have like a secular government, does that mean you have better access to water resources, yeah. for example? You know, I thought that was that was striking. Um, so, so is it? Do you think that's the case that it's 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 not necessarily it, you know it's that other systems or the people that claim to represent those systems basically have have failed um, um, at the basics of governance. Um, I mean, yes, I think that's 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 patently the case when it comes to the lived experience of the great majority of citizens in the region, you know, which is why we had the momentous events of 2010 and 2011. And and we see that those same contradictions lurk just below the surface, even in the face of renewed and comprehensive authoritarianism and crackdown on any form of dissent. We see that this lurks just below the surface in the sort of sequence of events that we've seen this year in Algeria, in Sudan, in Lebanon, in in Iraq, where once again, these issues come to the surface. And and again, I feel very confident that that until we engage with those basic failures and recognize the sort of root of them, it's likely that we're going to see a replay of this every few years. Um, And you can't just sort of paper over it with, with uh, making the strong man ever stronger, um, you know? And I worry that, that with each successive cycle, the, the risk of it escalating into violence um, grows. And so I think it's, it's, it's absolutely essential that we be asking more fundamental questions about what alternative models exist. 
I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that there is such a thing as a sitting on, on the shelf Islamic slash Islamist model of governance that you sort of pull off the shelf and, and implement. And I think that's precisely the nature of the critique that people like Al-Halak you know, have made of groups like the, the Muslim Brotherhood, where they sought to take a particular um, institutional container, the modern nation state, which had already had coded into its DNA certain possibilities and impossibilities, and, and to sort of somehow sort of shove Islam in, into that <laughs> unit and expect that, that, you know, just and effective good governance would emerge from that. It's, it's, it's just not possible. Right, right. Um, and also the, the issue of like sequencing, um, which is that, you know, um, the way that these polit- that political institutions uh, developed in uh, Western Europe and, and North yeah. America uh, could have a different sequencing than what's going uh, than than or you know taking that and just applying it to the Middle East or um, Asia or yes, you know, yeah. yes. or Asia or yeah. anywhere exactly exactly so there's like divergences there and um, um, and so I think you know one of the things when you talk to people on the ground there um, you know things have changed now of course but um, but it's just a cut and paste model like people that want change say okay well, let's look at Europe look at America look at how things are. Here, let's just cut and paste kind of their experience yes. into ours, um, which you can understand in the sense that um, you know govern you know the basics of governance. Um, despite you know obviously we have a lot of deep structural issues and social uh, problems here as well, um, but you know compared to to what's going on there, um, obviously there's there's a lot that we that we are doing right um, in on, in the basic sense. But uh, you so you can kind of understand that, but. Um, but at the same time, um, thinking about the divergent, you know, th- there's so many, thinking about how their cases are, are different is, is a much more difficult project. Yeah. Um, and and so th- that that brings me to, to, to another question of um, this issue of post-Islamism, mm-hmm. um, which I think touches upon a lot of the themes that uh, that you had just mentioned. Um, so thinking about the works of Asif Bayat and, and others that have touched on post-Islamism, um, can we can we think of Islam of post-Islamism um, in a different way? Not so much as the end of Islamism or the end of the idea that Islam or as a civilization can have something to say about ideology or governance today, um, but rather a focusing on uh, issues of governance or more basic issues or post ideological yeah. issues, or would you, you know, can we think about postism in that lens uh, rather than like kind of the end or like there's nothing else that that uh, Islamic revivalism can offer? Yeah, so you know, as I look at the literature on what we've come to call post Islamism, there seem to be two main strands to it. One is, I guess, I one is is more normative in orientation. That's the you know Asaf Bayat approach, and you know more on that in a moment. And then there's another that's kind of more sociological and analytical. And that's, I think, tied to the work that particularly people like Olivier Roy um, have undertaken. And it's that latter category where I've, I've sort of situated my own work on post-Islamism because I'm, I'm sort of fascinated by the way that that, that analytical pathway, I think, enables uh, us to understand you know, there, there's this, this, you know, amongst those who engage in, in critical theorizations of any sort, 
there's kind of a recognition of the um, kind of the emergence and presence and on and kind of almost omnipotence of, of neoliberalism as the sort of defining zeitgeist of the era. And you see it everywhere from, you know, in different formulas and Hardin Negri's work on empire and that trilogy, you know, and, and, but yet I think because Islam is so often thought of and treated somehow as a space of exception, um, the, the literature on contemporary Muslim societies has not sufficiently paid attention to the fact that neoliberalism has also um, had had its impact and and sunk its tendrils into Muslim societies and and Islam. And so I think that you know even though Olivier Roy doesn't quite do this in his work, I certainly do it in mine. Is to say, look, if we're going to name political Islam as the increased individualization of religious experience. You know, that, that sort of focus on the individual and the self, and more specifically a consuming self, you know, is a hallmark of neoliberal subjectivity. So let's, let's use the kind of, you know, let's use the framework of, of post-Islamism as a way to explore the impact of neoliberalism on Islam. Now, I think the tendency has been to treat these two branches of you know, post-Islamism studies as totally separate. I actually think it's it's quite productive and helpful and interesting to do that, but then to come back and to kind of suggest that that you know um, the the Olivier Roy type approach helps us to understand aspects of the problem, and then within Asif Bayat's work, we start to see the contours of a solution or what a sort of post-Islamist politics looks like. One that doesn't abandon Islam, but but moves away from an ideolo- I, I, ideolo- ideolo- ideological, ideological, ideological conception yeah. of, of political yeah. Islam as found in, you know, the, the avowedly modernist project of, of the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood, and, and instead gets us back to basic questions about how we engage with with the question of of justice and ethics and just and ethical governance informed by islam but but with without you know becoming the the ideological construct that ikhwanism grew to be and i think it's fair to say ultimately failed yeah absolutely absolutely um what do you think made um, governments uh, and states uh, attracted to uh, the project of, of neoliberalism um, in the past few decades? Something that's been, um, you know, been going on for a while uh, now. What do you think initially that that why did that shift happen? Well, I mean, I'm I I, I guess I at some level subscribe to elements of the kind of hard and negri analysis that that essentially says that. Even though, you know, early on in the process of the emergence of the particular configuration of political economy and governance that we call the neoliberal system, that, that you know, s- states were part and parcel of pushing us in, in that direction for sort of historical reasons related to the needs of empire and care and feeding of, and the sustenance 
existence and maintenance of empire, but the very nature of the um, of the model itself is such that within a couple of hundred years, I don't think that states any longer had the choice. I think st- what 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 we call modern liberal state g- governance itself was sort of recursively reconfigured by neoliberalism itself, and and you know those 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 governments and the states in question, you know, have effectively end, end, ended up as being little more than 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 servants to neoliberalism rather than the the dr- drivers of us. Than the drivers, mm, of it, the right? spectators of yeah, and and so mm-hmm. I mean, and to me that 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 is the kind of central global um, political economic contradiction that we're dealing with t- today, and I think so many aspects of of malfeasance and malignancy that we see in the body politic, not certainly of the United States, Europe, but globally, you know, are are corollaries of and byproducts of that that essential contradiction. Mm-hmm. So take to take a little bit of a, of a tangent there. Um, you know, looking at um, the rise of what do we call a popul um, sort mm-hmm. of populism, but also um, uh, I don't know what to call it. Xen- I don't want to say call it xenophobic. There, you you do see xenophobic yeah. elements in there, of course, as well. Um, but looking at you know the, the that in the Western world, um, especially, do you do you find that? to be a response to the same sort of problems that are created by um, neoliberal politics? Um, and do you think that, that wave, that current wave is... is no, I absolutely one? see these things as, as very closely related. And and I, I don't, you know, I'm not comfortable with an analysis of it that reduces the, the rise of, say, white nationalism to just sort of, you know, e- economic fears and structural problems. And, oh, you know, these 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 people are experiencing socioeconomic stress and so they they respond with xenophobia i i i think there there are fundamental cultural and identity questions at play but that that are also wrapped up in very complex ways with changing political economy you know and i and i i think you see the starkness of the contradiction expressed very clearly in you know the the way that that you know you know the, the the those who are often the the sort of victims of the structural inequalities that have been produced by neoliberalism still seem to be you know among the greatest advocates of the idea of of capitalism right and it's like this this inability to think outside those basic categories that there is nothing other than capital that 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 you can use to organize political economy. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, ideology, uh, ideas matter, um, and how people uh, yeah. approach their own ideologies. I think that you know that's reflective of that. Um, there's divergent ways you can respond to the same, yes. same challenges. That's that's absolutely um, right. And and so you know, I think this yeah. moment right now is a is a fascinating time to be asking questions about the global circulation of ideas. You know, not just because of the state of politics in the world. Um, but I think also, if we are at an inflection point in the kind of restructuring of world order, right? If 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 the sort of the hegemony uh, ideationally of the neoliberal or liberal democratic model has popped, then I think it's a particularly interesting time to be 
paying attention to what other kinds of narratives and stories of ideas are beginning to circulate and how people are beginning to build clusters of meaning around alternative alternative ideational sources. Um, and as you know, someone who studies Islam, I'm particularly interested in how how Islam fits into you know this 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 question of a of an emerging post Western world order. Yeah. Uh, exactly. So, so on that point, um, looking at the latest wave of, uh, of, of protest movements or uprisings, um, we see basically a lot of the cases which uh, initially might have uh, been on the sidelines of the Arab Spring, so, um, or at least not, not as uh, pointedly, but in uh, Algeria, Sudan, Lebanon, Iraq, um, do you find this to be? Um, do you find it useful to think about the, the these the, the the protest movement in these countries as um, a part of that same sort of uh, Arab Spring narrative or structure? Do you think it's useful to think about it as part of that? I mean, at, at one level, yeah. yes, but I think the sort of timing and the and the sort of morphology, the sort of shape of the protest events and the sort of di- discourse that surrounds them you know, quite necessarily also reflects the specificity and idiosyncrasies of those in individual contexts and, and settings. So, I mean, obviously, at one level, what's been going on in Iraq over the last couple of months um, is, is, yes, reflective of popular discontent at some of the same basic structural contradictions you know that 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 I think were fundamental to what happened in places like Egypt and Tunisia in 2010 and 2011. So you know, yes, some continuity there, but I think there's also some specific dimensions with respect to the sectarian political de- demographics of e- Iraq and sort of l- limits and contradictions. Uh, associated with the the kind of power inversion that took place in 2003, you know, and and, and the you know a country that had been effectively ruled by a Sunni minority for 500 years, you know, finding itself with Shia now being politically dominant at at the same time as you have this whole host of of internal you know political factions within the Shi'i political landscape of the country, some of which have these very complex connections outside the country's borders, most notably to Iran, um, as well as various forms of, you know, odd odd connection and sponsorship to the United States. And and so I I think the the, some of those contradictions, you know, are are thoroughly integrated into the field of protest as it's manifested itself in Baghdad and Basra elsewhere yeah. Yeah. for the last couple of months. Yeah. Yeah, I think the so thinking so so to focus a bit on the case of Iraq, I think it's a yes, fascinating it case. Um yeah, so I mean you see um because it really is a fulcrum of of so many different uh, international, regional and local issues. Um what um can we let's Maybe let's let's think about it from, uh, or, or, or allow me to ask you about the the United uh, about what U.S. Uh, what the United States is um, approach towards Iraq is. We've seen the framing from uh, from the Trump administration has been one of mainly focusing on uh, just pushing that this is about Iran is pushing pushing out Iran, but. Um, but of course, on the ground, it's it's much more complicated than that. What does what is the U.S.'s approach um, 
aside from the rhetoric um, towards uh, Iraq contemporary uh, today, how are they viewing the the, the protests? Um, uh, well, on the I, I <laughs> you know, I I have a you know, uh, 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 this is a very sort of fraught issue for me. I, I was a vociferous critic of the 2003 war. Um, I, I, I firmly believe that, that it will go down as one of the greatest mistakes in the history of U.S. foreign policy. And I think, you know, it will, be, will become to be viewed with hindsight as a, as a pivot moment that, that dem, dem, de, de demonstrated the, the, the moment at which the, the something like U.S. hegemony in, in international relations um, uh, reached its breaking point. Um, and, and so I, for years, stayed away from it. I didn't follow events in Iraq. I wanted very little to do with it. You know, when I worked in the, during my second stint in the Obama administration working at the State Department, um, because I was working on um, ISIS and the sort of challenge of Daesh, and more specifically the question of sectarian conflict, you know, I necessarily, you know, engaged with and tried to do some work in I Iraq. Um, but, you know, my work was more, uh, you know, oddly focused on, what's going on right now, which was that, you know, the, the policy priority at that time was we need to defeat ISIS. That, that, that was all people seemed to be care, seemed to care about. Um, and my, my kind of persistent point was, yes, obviously that's important, but the social fabric of this country has been torn apart. And, you know, un, un, unless the process of political reform moves forward apace, you know, we have in Iraq an equation that leads potentially to enormous instability. And I even said at that point, we're completely neglecting the southern part of the country, you know, because we're so obsessed with Mosul and, and, and quite rightly, the plight of religious minorities who suffered enormous atrocities at the hands of ISIS in the north of the country, we're losing sight of the fact that, that there's this very volatile situation in the south that will easily turn into instability and violence. And indeed, that's exactly what has happened now. I, 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 think, I think, frankly, the, the, you know, the, the entire discourse that's emerged you know, out of the, the sort of documents and papers about Afghanistan that have come out over the last couple of weeks that sort of show the abject failure of U.S. approach to Afghanistan and the fact that many U.S. military and political leaders knew damn well that, that nothing like the progress um, being reported was actually being made. Um, you know, I, I, I think that I, I see the Iraq I can't help but see Iraq very much through the, the same of, of paradigm. And so I, I, I don't know that there is an actual U.S. strategy on Iraq, you know, beyond, you know, stabilization and preventing Iranian hegemony. The problem is... Would they prefer stabilization to... Um, instability if Iran well, is dominating Iraq? 
I mean, that, that I think is where the, where the contradiction lies, because if the U.S. is worried about Iranian political dominance in Iraq, the single greatest enabler of Iranian political dominance in Iraq yeah. was the U.S. invasion of 2000. Right, exactly. And then stability would follow from that. That's just obvious. Yeah. And again, the, the, the kind of other contradiction, and, and we saw sparks of this during the fight against ISIS, when at a number of key moments, Washington and Tehran found themselves on roughly the same page in terms of what they were trying to achieve in Iraq. In, in, in some ways, a certain kind of Iranian hegemony in Iraq might actually be the greatest enabler of stability now. And, and so I think the question is for the U.S. and for its allies in the region like Saudi Arabia, is, is there some equation there that, 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 that U.S. policy can come to terms with and, and, and tolerate. Mm-hmm. Right. 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 Especially given the impetuous for um, some U.S. allies, namely, you know, Saudi Arabia and others to, um, to, to not want to see uh, Iran in a dominant position, which of course, I mean, they're, they're neighbors. So it's, and there's yeah. so many deep linkages there. Um, you know, 3 million pilgrims were just, were just in yes. Iraq from, from Iran. And, um, you know, so it's, we can't really, you know, say that Iran is not going to be there. It's just, there's so many families are, you know, go to Karbala, there are so many Iranian families there yes. from, for hundreds of years. Um, so, but, but there's an impetuous for, for, for some of our allies to, to go into Iraq, um, and challenge that order. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, we, Instability, as you mentioned, is one of the things that um, that can benefit, uh, or that has so far benefited uh, Iran more than uh, more than other other cases. So, um, you know, thinking about how to, to create stability, given that you know there are some of our allies or actors might want to challenge the status quo in Iraq. Um, how do you think? How do you think that that, that we can approach this well, issue? Well, I, I mean, th- th- this to me is is uh, a setting and a context that embodies this idea of the transformation to a post-Western world order. Because, because to my mind, the, the, the I think the, the, there's this constant struggling for you know what should the U.S. approach be? How can the U.S. fix this issue? And I think at some point we're going to have to realize that the U.S. is no longer in a position to fix this issue. The answers don't lie with the right policy coming out of Washington, D.C. Um, you know, if, 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 if I want to be a little bit provocative, um, my sense is that the, the, there, the, there's two pieces of the answer. And we, we see evidence of one of them playing out already in, you know, recent reporting from the Wall Street Journal over the last week, where we have heard about lines of communication and negotiation going on between Riyadh and Tehran. And this has always been the case. There have always been, um, you know, subterranean lines of communication that I think have been very important because both of these giant countries in the region know that open warfare and conflict between them would be disastrous. Right. And, and so they, they both understand the limits of that. And so they, they, there is evidence, I think, of a certain maturity in the way that they, you know, despite what's said publicly and despite the, the rhetoric, they un- understand the, the imperative of, 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 uh, of de- 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 conflicting wherever possible. So that's clearly going on right now. 
and you know, and that 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 I think is an opening on to what what a longer term solution for stability might be. So when when you think of these sort of grand scale regional trans, transitions, whether it's you know post World War II Europe, where or 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 the end of the Cold War. Often, often the thing that serves to stabilize and consolidate is the attraction of some enormous um, r- regional um, magnet institution or, or, or organization that that you know where 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 participation in that organization has so many positive byproducts and dividends that 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 it, that it drives people to lay aside differences and forces them to work together so i think you know the, the european union you know was was literally created in part in order to make warfare between germany and france impossible by making their economies too heavily integrated at the end of the cold war you know the possibility of membership in the eu and nato was i think a huge magnet that 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 you know enacted enormous energy on the direction of politics in in parts of central and eastern europe so to my mind i'm thinking so what's the what would be the equivalent of that for the Middle East. You know, some people talk about the need for an OSCE-like institution to, to replace the clearly useless regional organizations from the GCC to the Arab League. I actually don't think, I mean, I, yes, there may be a place for that. I actually think a more interesting answer potentially lies in China. And the fact that we have in the Belt and Road initiative, you know, this is, this is China's great reach westward, right, across its own western provinces, trying to create economic opportunity in those western provinces, into South Asia, South Central Asia, all the way over to the Middle East. Iran is desperate to be part of that, given its own economic woes. Likewise, Mohammed bin Salman, with Vision 2030, you know, at, at, at the heart of that is the, is the necessity for Saudi Arabia to develop a complex set of global portfolios and investment relationships that are likely going to plug into emerging Asian economies in a big way. Right? So at some point, Vision 2030 and Belt and Road cross each other. They, they have to be interoperable for both of them to be successful. And so my, my, my betting, I guess, is, is that at some point, the economic imperatives of, of, of allowing those two huge geoeconomic, geostrategic plays to succeed will, will exert sufficient downward pressure on Tehran and, and, and Riyadh to force them into some sort of, you know, detente or some kind of workable coexistence. Mm-hmm. As a mediated through, um, yes, through and, Chinese and economic, to me, what's interesting is that um, the the kind yeah, of the yeah. the uh, the uh, U.S. you know is is kind of almost wholly irrelevant <laughs> to that story. Mm, yeah, right, right. Yeah, no, I think there's um, obviously the trajectory is there's certain things that are, that's very important in United States policy definitely can affect, but uh, but in the U.S. policy can't solve all these other. Uh, all these yeah. myriad issues that, that you mentioned, um, and so just to, to touch back on, on Iraq again, um, you know Peter, Peter Galbraith uh, had a had an interesting quote where he talked about 
you know, looking at the constitution of Iraq, it seemed like more like a peace treaty to him rather than than a constitution for the country, um, which I think to a certain extent, um, you know, the structural issues inside Iraq um, are, are very serious in the sense that, um, you know, you have a semi-autonomous Kurdish uh, area um, that has, you know, a standing army of probably over 100,000 uh, men um, and different um Groups, you know, uh, with the emergence of the Hashashabi, for example, which is form, which is formerly under the the, the state, but of course, varying degrees of um, autonomy, does have yeah. its own autonomy. Yeah, so there's varying degrees of autonomy in uh, in Iraq, similar to, to to Lebanon, of course. In Lebanon, it's 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 the same case where um, Hezbollah, of course, is the most powerful armed actor. But you know, Hezbollah emerged from the civil war, which everyone, you know, the Falangists, the I mean, everyone was armed and uh, and had weapons, and and they still do. I mean, it's um, you know, the Druze militias, the other other militias um, have their have their weapons as well, to varying degrees of of autonomy. Um, so so in Iraq, and when that's mixed in with like the Mahasasa system of just like you know different groups. Basically, you know, this this idea of a peace treaty, I think, is interesting um, in the sense that, you know, it's not necessarily about the central government or developing, you know, or trying to get the serv- better services, um, which is a part of governance, but it's more, you know, the state revenues is more about dividing between, you know, factions rather than developing, yeah. you know, in a centralized way. Um, so how, how, you know, do you think that those, the trajectory of, how Iraq can move beyond um, and pay attention to these to, to, to groups that have been kind of excluded, yeah. especially the poor in southern Iraq. Um, do you think that um, you know these protests? I mean, I, it doesn't seem to me that these protests can can, can change those structural issues um, immediately um, in the long term, perhaps. But but w- where do you see um, the ways that um, that Iraq can potentially move beyond these issues? Is that or or do you think that 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 is well? You know, I've I've already for, outlined. For you know, my sense of what a long-term vision whereby broader global, uh, broader regional and cross regional strategies might exert downward pressure. But I I don't think that that's likely to be effective. You know, we're talking five, 10 years down the line at at best. And, and, and the, the angry citizens of Iraq are not going to wait for belt and road vision 2030 to meet and, you know, make beautiful things happen. Um, and, and so there will be, there will necessarily need to be some near-term source of stability. Um, and I think that, um, I, you know, I, I think that the the, the basic, in, in 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 the same way that if I can sort of pivot over to the Israel-Palestine conflict, we we know on paper what ninety-five percent of a solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict might might look like. You know, everyone who has followed the peace process knows what sorts of, you know, answers and solutions for the various dimensions of it have basically garnered a fair amount of agreement of both sides. It's been the political will to get, get us to those, those solutions. Likewise for Iraq, you know, the whole set of political reform activities that have generally been discussed and played out under the label of national reconciliation, you know, we, we know what those pieces are supposed to look like um, in terms of certain elements of political de- devolution, changes in the country's n- national guard law, um, 
that would give greater autonomy and capacity to um, you know police and security units that are local to the and that, that draw from and are local to the the, the, the populations that they serve and, and protect. We we know what those elements would look like. It's 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 the political will that's been been uh, lacking. Yeah, um, and so uh, you know I I don't I I I don't know that these protests will in and of themselves you know, push the political classes and particularly the Shi- the sort of dominant Shi'i political classes of Iraq into a place where they realize what needs to change. Um, but I think that it, there's a very real risk that in addition to ongoing sort of social foment and protest instability that just, you know, shuts the country down um, and makes life ever more precarious, the likelihood of the reappearance of insurgent units and some new incarnation of, you know, sal- Salafi jihadi activity you know, is, is very likely. And, 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 you know, that, that I think may provide the kind of necessary yeah. wake up. I mean, there seem to be a lot of uh, signals from specialists who are focusing on this issue of, of Salafi jihadism and the resurgence of yeah. ISIS, that that seems to be kind of um, a real threat. It seems to be potentially in the near future, medium future. Do you, do you think that that, that the reemergence of, of such a, such groups um, is is likely? I mean, it's hard, to, of course, to predict. But, yeah. but, yes, you know. yes. No, I do. I do. I mean, I can't, I can't say, you know, it, it will be in March. Or, right. it, you know, right. it, it's going to happen right. in, in January 2021. Right. Um, but, but I mean, as, as, a, as a sort of analyst of the, of, of the region, my sense is that all of the necessary precipitating elements are already in place. You know, and 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 then it's it's sort of wild card events that often kind of push you past the the, the, the threshold. So, uh, you, you know, so if 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 this happened next week, it, it wouldn't surprise me in the least. If it doesn't happen until July, that that wouldn't be surprising. Is there structural issues like uh, in Syria and Iraq, um, or do you think it might be another um, another location in the region? Um, I I. I, I, you know, I, I used to think that that it was more likely in 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 Syria uh, that we would see this first. Um, I, given how events have have played out there over the last couple of months, and given how things seem to be evolving very rapidly and fluidly in in, in Iraq, I, I think I would expect to see it in Iraq. Mm, yeah. First. Mm, mm. Um, we're, yeah, that's that's quite worrying. Um, yeah. But um, you 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 would hope to see more responsible actions by international players to try to kind of create to try to prevent that. So hopefully that yeah. can that can be on the horizon. Um, you know, but, but speaking about uh, you know going back to the point that you made um, about the, the potential economic um, influence uh, or interlinkages which could arise from China um, uh, in the region, of course. Can we think about the geopolitical um, implications of that? Um, you know, one of the main uh, partners that China um, is is working with is is Pakistan um, mm-hmm. for the for the One Belt, they've uh, One Belt One Road initiative, which they've invested um, a lot of capital in. Um, do you think that that um, uh, thinking about how other actors in the region uh, will see um, or, or 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 will react to that? Um, I think one of maybe 
one of the players which is is pretty dormant now, but which can potentially play a larger role is India. How yeah. do you think India would would react to um, to to the uh, rise of the one one belt one road initiative if it is successful in interlinking with the Middle East? Yeah, I see. I th- I think in India, like in in all of these sort of grand um, sort of Vision Twenty Thirty Belt and Road interoperability visions. In, in India is increasingly the giant in in the middle, whose whose reaction and disposition towards all of this is is crucial. And we, you know, I, and I think that's even more the case given you know the the sort of B, B, the, the the dominance of the BBJP, and you know increasingly nationalist Hindutva oriented political discourse in. In, in the country um, risks, you know, um, an escalation in tension with Pakistan and then by extension with China um, that, that is very worrying and, and you know, starts to bear certain similarities to um, the kind of general dynamic between Iran and Saudi Arabia a little further to the West. Um, so, so, I mean, yes, I see. I see some potential turbulence and and downside risk there. Um, I, I guess I'd like to hope that um, that 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 the same kind of um, economic imperatives, um, because I, I don't think that India has enough economic capacity to sort of wither the. The, the the sort of combined force of Belt and Road mm, right. Vision 2030. Would the Chinese want to have India part of that or benefit from that One Belt One Road initiative? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a, uh, I'm not one of these people who, you know, follows very closely the kind of China versus India rivalry in, in all of its dimensions, um, but. You know, based on the structure of Belt and Road and its reliance on both land and maritime elements, um, I, I think it's impossible that that India not not be be part of that or cooperative with it in certain minimal ways. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that those are all very um, interesting uh, future scenarios. Um, Thank you so much uh, for your time, um, uh, Professor. Uh, I really benefited. Uh, we all really benefited from. Uh, we will benefit, I should say, once it's published uh, from from the discussion. Um, I wanted to give you um, uh, opportunity to maybe talk about uh, any potential future work. I know you have um, the religious soft power project at Brookings, um, yes. as well as uh, an edited volume. I don't know uh, if you'd like to maybe um kind of discuss some of those uh, future projects and and what you're working on next sure sure thanks yeah. no they're, yeah. they're the the kind of central research project that i'm working on right now um is called the the geopolitics of religious soft power um it's, it's based at georgetown university's berkeley center for religion peace and world affairs um but some of the publishing is done in cooperation with the, the Brookings Institution, particularly where the things that we're doing are kind of policy relevant. And the, the heart of the project is really to explore in globally comparative perspective the various ways in which states use religion, both formally and informally, as a geopolitical tool, as, as an aspect of their foreign policy. And the project kind of has, has three layers to it. The kind of, the kind of formal middle layer um, 
looks comparatively at the use of religion in the foreign policy of Iran, Saudi Arabia, and, and Turkey. Um, uh, there's a, a sort of outer layer that that kind of moves beyond the Muslim majority world and, and recognizes that there are a great many countries uh, where varying religious traditions are dominant that, that also use religion. And so there we're commissioning st studies that will look at religion in, in India's foreign policy, look at the way in which Putin uh, has used the right. Orthodox Church as a geopolitical tool, looks at how religion and American religious actors have in intersected with U.S. foreign policy. Uh, we do Israel, we cover China, uh, Brazil, um, the, the, the Vatican City. And then there's a sort of inner core of the project, which is in some ways the nucleus of it and where it began, which was a desire that I've had for many years, although never the time or the kind of space in my, my research portfolio to kind of look in detail at this long debated question of Saudi Arabia's export of Wahhabism and its, its impact around the world. Something, as you know, we've talked about for ages and which in my experience tends to be talked about in fairly crude ways. You know, either people are saying that Wahhabism is the root of all nefarious things in the world, you know, that Al-Qaeda and ISIS spring directly from Saudi religious influence, you know, and it's often enemies of Saudi Arabia that tend to be pushing that. Then on the other extreme, you have people that kind of whitewash it entirely and say, oh, you know, you know, it's, it's conservative religion, but there's nothing problematic about it. And neither of these two images is correct. And so what I wanted to do was, you know, grounded in sound scholarship, I wanted to do a sort of global overview and analysis of the history, evolution, and transformation of, of Saudi da'wah around the world. And so I'm very happy that that that's coming to fruition in the form of an edited volume um, that will be coming out with Oxford U University Press uh, next year that, that you know, is, is both a, a kind of analytical portrait of the, of the, of the, um, the kind of key elements and, and actors within Saudi global da'wah. And then the second half of the book is a series of nine in-depth country case studies from around the world where scholars, many of whom are based in those countries, uh, who have sort of studied the historical evolution and dynamics of s s Salafism within that country, kind of essentially tell the story of what the arrival of Saudi transnational religious influence has looked like in their country and the impact that that that, that it's had. So, so I'm hoping that 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 will kind of help to um, kind of bring some nuance and complexity to our way that we think and talk about this phenomenon of, of Saudi religious export activity. Absolutely. Well, if it's uh, if your prior work is, is indication, I'm sure that this um, that this edited volume will really um, contribute to our understanding um, and uh, academic as well as you know rigorous, uh, more rigorous understanding of of uh, Saudi Arabia's role in the region um, and these very important questions, um, which will continue, I think, um, to to be relevant um, in the region uh, and beyond. So that's very encouraging to hear about that project. And uh, I hope that actually we can work together with uh, the project on Shiism and global affairs at Harvard uh, to think about these questions. So thank you so much for, for your time, uh, Professor. Uh, really benefited. Um, and uh, we hope to, to have this conversation soon again. It's a great pleasure, Mohammed. Thanks so much for, for talking.